Please Till Dawn continue on Channel 5 with Island of Lost Souls. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFolita, and I'm still here. Of all the filmmakers I've spoken to, none has had a, a, such a, an, an impact and, and such a, a profound significance on my own life as Andy Garcia. We made a movie called City Island. It came out in 2010. It started its life long before that. My agent said, you know, our company represents Andy Garcia. What if we sent it to him? I said, well, yeah, he's, he's brilliant. He's great. He's Andy. Can he play an Italian-American? This is one of the dumbest things I've ever said in showbiz. I mean, it's like, what, what, like, what am I fucking thinking? The guy is Godfather Part 3. He's the honorary, he's more Italian-American than anyone who, you know, the question is, does he want to do it? Because if he does, he's going to do it because he knows he's going to bring something good to it. So we sent it to him, and I was stunned to hear fairly quickly, yeah, Andy likes this, and, and can he call you? Uh, and he called me up, and I remember it was like Thanksgiving weekend or something, and I got this phone call from a block number, and I heard this voice say, Raymond, uh, this is Andy Garcia. It was a very dark, kind of noir Andy voice. It was down here. It's like Andy when he's playing a cop, sort of. Or a, you know. I don't know whether he did this just to kind of mess with me or something. So we met, and uh, we had a great meeting. What I realized when I was talking with him, though, was that I wasn't really necessarily just talking to an actor, I was talking to a filmmaker. He had smart ideas about the movie, he had smart ideas about who could be in it, uh, and we just had a simpatico. We both loved jazz, we loved Latin music, we loved a lot of the same cultural items. We talked about directors that he had worked with, who I admired. Uh, we got each other. And without really any planning, I just said at the end of the meeting, what if we did this movie together as partners? Which, by which I really meant, which he knew, like, let's produce it together. You know, let's make this happen together. And, and, and you know, he, he got it. And it was great because it still took us a couple of years to put together, but he shared his phone book with me and we got actors involved. And again, it, it's never easy. It still took us time to do. But we made that movie, and, and uh, we're both really proud of it. So here's part one of my conversation with Andy, uh, and we talk about, among other things, the legendary uh, Cuban composer uh, and music innovator Cachao, who was a very important part of Andy's life. Uh, we also talk about the great director Hal Ashby, who was also an important part of Andy's early career. And finally, you're going to hear about a very weird baseball coach that Andy had at one time in his young life. But you were mentioning about Cachao. I used to see him in Miami playing at these little clubs. This is like when you were a teenager growing yeah, up there? Grew, yeah. yeah, and when I started collecting music, I was a collector of both Motown and Cuban music. I used to go into Overtown, where Deep City Records was, and, uh, and there was one particular... Uh, record store there, barred up with you know wrought iron bars and stuff like that, and it was a, you know, it was that overtime was the area where it, you know when 
in the old days when you know Duke or uh, Sammy Davis or Ella Fitzgerald used to come play in Miami Beach and the hotels or whatever, they weren't allowed to stay in the hotel, so they'd stay in Overtown. Hmm. So I used to go to that record store, and you know, the guys there. The first time I walked in there, they said like, "What the hell are you doing here?" You know. But I used to go buy R&B records there that I couldn't find anywhere else that would play on the on the uh, R&B stations, you know, and. And then I used to also began to collect Cuban music. And I, I ran into, on A Street, in a record store, an album that said, Jam Sessions in Miniature, Descargas en, en Miniatura, Cachao y su Conjunto, Cachao and his combo, you know, kind of yeah. thing. I asked the guy, what is this? Because it seemed very, you know, compelling. And this was before I had even met Cachao. I seen him play live. And he said, oh, they're also the five greatest musicians, you know, rhythm, that's the greatest rhythm session that Cuba has ever produced right there, those five guys. So I bought this thing and that record transformed my life. And that's the Bible. I realized later on that I was the Bible for anybody who wanted to learn how to play, uh, you know, Cuban per uh, percussive instruments and how they related to one another and what their functions were in the music. And then I started to say, well, Cachao lives there in Miami. I started to track him down. He was playing with a band called Hansel and Raul. He was on bass there and doing a lot of their arrangements. And then uh, he'd do a jam sessions at these little, at the Crossway Airport Inn with other great musicians that were there. And so I started watching him. I never, I never went and talked to him, never introduced myself. I would just watch him play and all the other musicians. And then uh, I saw him in a concert in San Francisco doing his danzones. And at that time, we had just got back from shooting The Godfather. And Tom Luddy, which you, you know from Telluride, mm -hmm. who had worked with Francis, knew that we were both big Cachao fans. And he said, hey, Cachao's playing up here. Come check him out. So we went up there, and I finally met him, was introduced. And then I got the idea of doing a concert to honor him in Miami. And I shot it on 16 millimeter, And that was the first of like five documentaries I've done of him. Chanchuyo. You know, he's been copied so much, you know, as the as the father of a mambo with his brother in the late 30s, Orestes Lopez in 1938. They wrote the original mambo in a danzón orchestra, you know, strings. And his music has, he revolutionized Cuban music several times was over, so all his music has been inspired and copied for, by everybody, mm -hmm. you know, including the, the famous song, Oye Como Va, you know, that Santana made famous. Tito Puente is listed as the author, but uh, it's, it's, the hook is from a cachao tune called Chanchullo. And Cachao was, you know, recorded Chanchullo and recorded Oye Como Va with Tito Puente in his band. Right. He was on bass kind of thing. So it be, and it, so it, by default, it became Tito Puente's song. Yeah. Tito Credit, was yeah. a great admirer of Cachao. They were friends, you know. Uh, why they didn't at least split it, you know, that's between... Uh, I asked Cachao once, and I said this in a documentary. I said, Cachao, that song, you know, that song is lifted from Chanchullo, you know, and everybody knows that. And... And I mean, how do you feel about that? And he'd kind of, in, in his way, which he was a very humble guy and very sort of like, let go, let God kind of thing. He said in Spanish, tu sabes como son los muchachos, which means, you know how kids are. 
Did you think you were going to be a musician? Was that was that an early ambition of yours? Yeah, I was an early ambition, early love of mine. Yeah, even before I had sort of even thought about acting as a as something as a profession. Music was my life always. I started studying percussion, collecting music. I used to right. I used to DJ, you know, club, you know, parties and stuff like that, and huh. you know, mix records. You got you know, in the old days when I was a teenager, you know. Right. Yeah. Weren't you sort of studying business, though, in college? Weren't you kind well, of... Well, I, I worked in my father's business, so I didn't know what I was going to study. I just, you know, was like, oh, no, I'll sign up as a BA, you know, associate degree, and uh, I guess I'll study finance. I wasn't... I was already flirting with, with acting, but it didn't really... It took me about a semester or two, and I took some acting electives in college. The first one really being in, in high school, where the teacher really encouraged me, and I, I had a lot of fun in the class. And then I kept kind of fiddling with it. And then by the second semester, I, I realized that I was failing all my business classes. And, right. and I had no attention for it, you know. But then there's this whole bizarre like, like story of, of, of were you a, being scouted as a baseball player? And no. somehow you're on a team with Mickey Rourke. No, no. None no. of that really makes sense. No, no. What is that? It does. It does in the sense that I was, you know, I, I was a jock as a kid. You know, my... My main focus growing up was sports. You know, right. I played basketball and baseball. I was very small and skinny, but uh, I was, you know, I, I was devoted to the the sports. And and Mickey Rourke was my little league coach in mm -hmm. Miami Beach. Now that's even stranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it only gets stranger. And we won the city championship with him as a coach. Uh, I won the batting championship. My buddy Howie Shapiro, who was a shortstop, won the most valuable player. And Mickey would coach. In hip hugger bell bottoms, with a t the t shirt like a Mick Jagger t shirt that wouldn't cover his <laughs> belly button really tight, you could see the crack of his ass, <laughs> and sandals those little kind of Indian you know Jesus sandals you know, and a big shag haircut and he was the coach. Mickey was a very good baseball player, but he had he had gotten kicked off the Miami Beach High School <laughs> baseball. Gee, <team>. really? Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, and he was very good. We loved baseball. And he, so he, he, he was our coach. And we won the city championship. And he didn't show up to get the, the, the award. But, <laughs> but we all did you know, with our parents or whatever. He came to our City Island premiere. Yeah, that's right. And it was right before The Wrestler, I believe. Yeah. Or maybe it was right after The Wrestler. Yeah. I think that maybe he was there for the festival too. Yeah. And he sat right, he sat with me. Yeah. No, he's great. We're, we're very, I mean, we're still good friends. We just don't see each other much. But we, right. we you know. An old good friend is always an old good friend, you know. Mm. Great actor. Oh, he's amazing. Great actor. Yeah, and and just put to me, it's just put Barfly and oh. and and the wrestler together on a shelf, and you don't need anything else. It's no, perfect, no, incredible, yeah, perfect incredible body of work in two movies. Yeah, when I first met him, when I came out here in in '78 to LA looking for work, I went to see Heaven's Gate, and I watched the movie, and I stayed for the credits, and I was in this long cast list. All of a sudden, I see Mickey Rourke, and I went. Mickey Rourke? He said, I wonder if that's my Mickey Rourke. I didn't recognize him in the movie. He had a small part, you know. And I said, Mickey, as an actor? And I took, you know, it's like you take like a beat and you go, yeah, of course. He's a fascinating guy. And uh, like I said, just a wonderful actor. Where is Sarah? You don't make the rules here today, baby. Jeff Bridges, star of Jagged Edge and Starman. You're going to blow the deal, man. Roseanne Arquette, star of Desperately Seeking Susan and Silverado. You got Sonny killed. They're in trouble. Anything can happen when there's eight million ways to die. What I'm remembering is the first time I saw you in a movie was Eight Million Ways to Die. 
Yeah. That's 1985 or 6. Yeah. I saw it at the uh, one of those theaters on East 86th Street in New York. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I didn't yet know who you were. Yeah. And I'm watching you and Jeff Bridges just do like word jazz, like yeah. these insane scenes. But I, and yeah. I was hysterical. I was I like, know. what are these guys doing? Like, who wrote this script? <laughs> yeah, I think we should bullshit each other, all right, Angel? No, I don't think so. I know you did, Sonny, okay? Relax, baby. Hey, man. Compared to me? Compared to me? You're doing fantastic. Compared to you, it ain't saying much, but, man. But. What? I said, if you got five bucks, you want ten. Am I right? So I got 250000 No equal weight in the white stuff. The what? The white stuff. The white stuff? The white stuff. Is not a movie about astronauts? There were scripts that were written and tossed out, and then they you know, but about halfway through the movie, it was all bets were off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, because they pulled the plug and we had to, you know, improvise scenes that weren't yet written. And it was a, it was a whole process. But that was, was that Canon films? No, was that, no, was it was, that, uh, uh, it was a uh, PSO, Producer Sales Organization. Oh, Mark, the, Mark Damon. That right, yeah, the foreign okay, yeah. rights and Columbia owned the domestic rights. Mm. It was like a split rights deal. So tell me about Hal Ashby, your oh, first my. meeting with him, what you thought of him. I, it's one of my favorite filmmakers. Me and too. You, yeah, me you and too. I have talked about him. We, but, no, yeah. he was, he's, I came in France as my heroes, you know. Uh, and I got a chance to work with both of them, you know. Wow. I mean, Hal's movies had blown me away for years, you know. The, the, the resonance of his movies, you know, the human behavior in his movies. And as I turned out, because there's a lot of freedom to explore, was really something that, that was very evident. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I told the story, but uh, it's a curious thing, you know. But I had done a movie with Kurt Russell and Mariel Hemingway called A Mean Season. And my agent, Jerry Scott, at the time said, uh, there's this movie with Jeff uh, called uh, A Million Ways to Die, and there's uh, the antagonist in the movie. This is young Colombian coke dealer. And I'm talking to Lynn Stallmaster about you. And I said, oh, my God, Hal Ashby. You know, and I said, uh, and Jeff, imagine. I was, you know, I was a kid. I was, you know, off the street kind of thing, you know. And, uh, and apparently Lynn, you know, when she suggested my name, she goes, no, I saw Andy in that movie. I know Andy. He says, oh, he's a wonderful young actor, but, you know, we're looking more like for a Hector Macho Camacho type. You know, he was a boxer at the time. And that was the, he was like, you know, strong. He had like a mohawk and tat, tattooed, very urban, you know. And, I, and Andy's too sophisticated. You know, he's, not, he's the wrong type for the thing. And so I told Jerry, I said, Jerry, please, because I got the script. You know, I said, you got to get me in here. I know who this guy is. I grew up, I mean, I, I know who they are. I grew up amongst them. I've waited on them, you know. I know who this guy is. So it took a little while for her to convince Lynn to see me, you know. Right. And so when I went to see Lynn at his office there off of Olympic Boulevard, Olympic Boulevard Pico, and, uh, you know, I knew that if I just went in as Andy and then read... You know, kind of did it. It was, it was maybe it was like a courtesy meeting or something for Jerry. You know, 
So I just went in in character, you know. I just, I just said, I'm coming in as Angel. You know, I got dressed up. I called, you know. I just went in. And at the time, I used to smoke. And I sat in the, in the lobby there. I already went in and, you know, ready, just ready to blow, you know, kind of thing. And Lynn took me into his office and he said, uh, and, I, and I started to, we were about to read and I started to light a cigarette. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, there's, there's no smoking in here. <laughs> and I said to Lynn, he says, Angel doesn't give a fuck what you think. <laughs> and so that was, I took my shot right away. And kind of Lynn, being the extraordinary, talented man that he was, he kind of knew, okay, here we go. Here we you know, go. Here's another, here's <laughs> this another actor. This is what this guy's going to do, yeah. <laughs> this, this is what this guy's going to do. And we're going to have to, you know, I'm going to give him the space to do it, you know, because maybe he's the guy. I don't, you know. God bless Lynn, you know, he, he cast me in that and the untouchables. So imagine he's so, so important in my life. Sure. And, uh, well, he was, so, the go- he was the God of casting. God of casting. So years, I said, decades, I said, yeah. this is my shot. I'm not going to come in here and you know, I'm, I got to show him who this guy is. So then he said, okay, can you want, you want to go to another room, uh, where you uh, let you smoke. And for some reason, I came. This is what I said to him, and I've never forgotten because uh, who knows why, how it came to me. But I said, wherever we're going, I've already been, and wherever you've been, I don't need to go. <laughs> and he, he went, okay, that's all right. Well, let's let's go over here. You know, he's like, what do I got? It's too early in the morning for this, you know, this guy. <laughs> so I read for him, and then he 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 responded, you know, and then he said. You mind reading for the producer? He's in the other room. And I said, sure. And then I read for Steve Roth right there. And then uh, then they said, Hal is about to get here. Do you mind hanging around? We'd like you to read for Hal. And I said, okay. Hal came in, and uh, he was very sweet, as he always Hal is a real gentleman. Loves actors, loves artists, you know. And so we read, and there was a woman in the in the uh, room who was the associate producer. Forget her name now. And in the scene, there was a scene between me and Jeff that Lynn was reading Jeff, but he was also reading the one line from the woman. So I said, "You do you mind reading this one line?" So how you know? She said, "Oh no, that's fine. I'll read it." And so we start this haggling scene. You know, we're kind of arguing me and Jeff's character, me and Lynn, and then the 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 lady it was her turn to speak the 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 line and she said the line was something like angel please you know get a hold of yourself you know you're being unreasonable something like that right and when she said that i turned to her and i just went off off book and i just belittled this woman i told her to shut up who the hell you think you're talking to i got up i got in her face i i thought the woman was going to have a heart attack so the color in her face was starting to go, and I said, I would just say to her, shut up. I don't want to hear one word. You know, just, I just went on and on and on like that, and I just lost my mind. Then I turned back to Lynn, and we continued the scene. And we finished, and I remember Hal looked over, and he went like, well, that, that, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, well, I and, think you were his kind of actor, because he uh, loved that. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, listen, Ray, I was going to take a shot here. I was not. He's like, uh, this, I know this guy, is, you know, not only is a coke, dealer and coke fiend but he's a killer he kills women in this in the movie you know he's a this guy has no he's, he's not a sophisticated character you know he's got a hot short fuse so i took my shot and they liked it they offered me the part 
No, first he, I, I said, they said, thank you very much for coming in. Then I broke character completely. And I said, Mr. Ashby, it's a great pleasure to, to be here for you. You know, you've been a great inspiration to me. And if this part doesn't work out, I'd like to take a shot at the, at the there was a, it was written as a Bahamian pimp. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I know I'm not Bahamian, but uh, I had spent a lot of time there and I could play him as someone who, who has grown up there. And, and he went, okay, well, would you like to come back? And I said, well, I'd like it one day to turn around and prepare the part. He said, okay. So I went home and my agent, this is a long story, but it's funny. I think no, it's well, funny. Yeah. He says, Jerry called me. He goes, what the hell happened? He goes, no, nothing. I think it went really well. He goes, yeah, it went really well. They offered you the part of Angel, but how we'll see you on Thursday for the other part. Well, at that point, did you want to even do it and take the risk of losing Angel? I don't know. I did. I went back in and I, and I read the other part. Well, see, what, and what I remember you, Jeff was saying he was Jeff was hearing these stories. He goes, "Who's, who's this crazy kid? Right? <laughs> who's coming in to play this part?" You but know? What, what you did was like uh, to me. This is a great gift that an actor can give to a, a, a filmmaker during an audition, where they walk in and they whatever they do, they simply basically explain to you what the guy is, and you don't have to do anything. Now I got this. Yeah. You know, like when an actor comes in in total with total authority and goes, "Here, here's what it is." My thought is, you just took all this work away from me. Yeah, this is yeah. perfect. You're going to do well, it. Well, Hal, Hal always would talk about that he said uh, that he, you know, whole thing about for him is casting. You know, once he casts his movies, he said, he, and these are quotes from him. I'm not making it up. He said, 99% of the time, I believe if you give an actor a piece of direction, you're doing him a disservice. <laughs> because if you cast the right guy and he knows what he's doing, you have to give him the opportunity to even figure out he would he said this because if he's going in a certain direction he's got to get across the river and the bridge is out if you deprive him of the of the process of figuring out how to get across the river then you're depriving him of his creative process and you're depriving yourself as a documentarian of watching him figure it out and capturing those moments of of searching and all that which is what he was interested in sure so he never the the, the one thing i could say about him other than, I mean, so, there's so many things, but he never passed judgment uh, and, on the work that was being done, no matter how abstract it was, it, whether it was an improvisation that was really not going anywhere or whatever. He would just come in and say, well, that was interesting. We got that. Try something else. Yeah, he would never great. say that's not working. What are you doing? No, because then you're shortcutting like the you know. Well, no, the... because then you go. Well, he doesn't like what I'm doing. You start editing yourself. You try, try to please something that shouldn't be pleased. Right. You're just ex exploring. Well, if and he, he was really a master liked it, editor too, yeah. so he knew what he could. You know, he he could pluck something that was there, and also things look different later. I find a lot of the time things yes. that might not have felt like they were working. You look at it later, and you go, Jesus, that was great. Like, yeah, why did we do e that? Exactly. You know? That you find that a lot. That. Something that's irrational on the day is just the subconscious of the movie coming out in the actors. Mm. And it's this collective subconscious. And he encouraged when he saw something he really liked, he'd go, okay, you know, do more of that or whatever, you know. But but he would never go, no, that's not that's not right. Never, ever. No matter how he would just go, Wow, that was interesting, you know. Right. And I think that was a, one of the greatest gifts he gave me, you know, as an actor. And hopefully I can impart that as a director too, you know, is that, is that don't let, don't never give a direction to actors or, or get involved where you're stifling 
their instinctual moves, you know, mm-hmm. and that's important because then they start going, uh, now, now I'm trying to please you as opposed to explore the material. Right. There's a scene in there that, uh, that's at the warehouse where there's this big shootout. And I remember that there was no dialogue in that scene at all written. We went to the warehouse on Saturday. This is like a Hal Ashby process. We all got together on Saturday. We went to the warehouse, this open cavernous thing. It was like 100 yards long. And Hal said the head of the SWAT team, LA SWAT team was there, was a consultant in the movie. And you'll see him in the background working with Jeff, you know, in the, in the movie. And uh, he said, okay, you're going to have Roseanne Arquette taped to a, a shotgun is going to be taped to her neck. And then we're going to tape... Fred Asparagus is uh, my buddy's heavy set Mexican guy, which I brought in as one of my guys. We're going to tape the trigger to his finger. So if he gets shot, his weight will blow her head off. You're going to come in from this side of the thing. And Hal says to me, and Jeff is like 70 yards away with all my coke laid out with like uh, Molotov cocktails and rig to blow it all up. And he's trying to get the girl back and I'm trying to get my coke back. <laughs> and Hal said, uh, if, what would you do if you come in here with your guys? And I said, what well, I said, one guy over there my, and this guy over here. And, and I said, I want to make sure what's behind that, those rafters up there. He goes, well, could you do me a favor and not look at those rafters? Because I want to drop to rappel to SWAT guys from there. And I said, yeah, I'm coked out of my mind. I probably would not. I'm not. I can give you that, you know. That's the stage. And you're going to walk up to Jeff to here, and then you guys are going to haggle. And, you know, and I go, and I'm going, okay. And I'm going like, well, but there's no scene written, you know. So we get there Monday morning, and very early in the morning, we get dressed. And I wait for Hal outside the trailer on the, to walk towards the warehouse. And I said to him, Hal, I, I was, this is what I was thinking that I could say to, so I was thinking about this, about what to say to Jeff. And before I could even say it, he said, eh, don't worry about it. Just, just haggle with him. Are you going to cut her loose right now and send her out of here with Chance in his car? Those are the rules, Angel. What, am I supposed to swallow that bullshit? Who do you think you're talking to, Chance? Fuck you, motherfucker. Hey, look who's here. The man to look for doesn't see, huh? You brought your boyfriend along, huh? Fuck you! Ah, playing hero! I want you, motherfucker. Leave it alone, Chance. Get back. You're playing hero to your lady. You're a little late for that, don't you think, baby? I had to walk, like, you know, it looks like, you know, like 40 yards, 50 yards. I had to fill that. Me and Jeff had to fill that with dialogue before we got into the last bit of confrontation where I cut her loose. He said, let's just try one. But he said, here's the thing. You haggle with him, try to try to win the negotiation, but at the end of the day, you have to cut her loose. Because if not, the movie stops. <laughs> and so I said, that's your whole map that you've got. That's like, it. And I just said, yeah, that's what I was thinking that I would say. And he goes, no, don't worry, let's just try one. And he, he just started shooting. He just didn't want. He didn't want to tell me what to say or say I like it, I don't like it. He's just trusted. He said, go, just fly with it. And we, you know, then you saw that, and he had multiple cameras going, and you saw that scene was just very combustible. And, yeah, no, it's And it's, and it's, it's been totally... kind of emulated in many different sure. ways. I know Tarantino has always spoken about it, and, and it was wild. It was a wild scene. I lost my voice, and <laughs> I had to do my off-camera to Jeff when, when he got into his close coverage, like, 
mostly like sign language because I had no voice. <laughs> it was crazy. It was crazy. Hey! Don't touch yes, my the first key goodbye, Daddy O! What the fuck? Is, hey! Hey! What the fuck are you doing? Don't fucking do it, man! Uh, Don't fucking I got try it! goddamn thing to lose! Don't fucking try it! Put the fucking fire out! Yes, out. goodbye, man! Don't fucking do it, man! Put the fire Woo. out! What the fuck are you doing, man? Hey, Mundo, put the fire out! Mundo, hey, get the fuck over it! What the fuck are you doing? Hey, <laughs> leave that shit! The way Hal set up the situation for that to be able to happen. That's the beauty. I think that's the magic of, of Hal. And I would ask him about being there because I thought that movie was like, uh, I thought that was, I said, well, that's more like Shakespeare. I mean, that was so precise, that movie. He went, oh, no, 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 no. He says once, once uh, you know Peter got the character, he would come up and say things you know that were not scripted and things just like observations or comments, and whatever he would say, all the other actors would just justify it as the profound truth. So a lot of that was Sellers. Yeah, yeah. He because I mean I, I heard... haven't read the novel, so I don't know how much, but you can tell that there was a lot of that you know, and people would just if he would say something crazy, they would just go. Wow, child, how I've seen right. that. that was really was was that's beautiful, you know, whatever. You know, it's interesting because I've read about Sellers too. I mean, it sounds like Ashby was the perfect director for him. Oh my god, because he was very, very um, uh, defensive and very sensitive, and giving him direction was to him was akin to shutting him down. Yes, uh, and so Sellers couldn't, and he he had a lot of trouble with a lot of different directors, but it was always the same problem, yeah. which was you kind of had to let him just be Peter Sellers and, yeah. and, and explode with all of his ideas. Otherwise he'd get thrown and um, yeah. And, and so Ashby was probably, he, he told me that him. he told me, cause I talked to him a lot about being there, which I think is one of the great masterpieces of films uh, up there with the Godfather one and two. I think this is, for me, you can, those are the top three, you know, as far as for me. And, he said that uh, two weeks into the thing, Peter wanted to start shooting again and reshoot all the scenes because he had finally gotten the character in his own mind. Mm. And, and, and Hal said, no, no, Peter, you have Yeah, how do you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, you got to talk about that. Could you please tell me where I can find a garden to work in? A garden? Oh, no, you growing, man? There is much to be done during the winter. I should start the seeds for the spring and work the soil. Oh, shit. Who sent you here, boy? Did that chicken shit asshole Raphael send you, boy? No. Mr. Thomas Franklin told me I must leave the old man's house. He's dead, you know. Dead, my ass. You tell that asshole if he got something to tell me to get his ass down here so. You got that, boy? Check it out. If I see Raphael, I will give him your message. Do that. Good day. Yeah, you want to have a good day. Too. But apparently, at the end, at the end, uh, I heard also he got really upset with Hal because he, at the end of being there in the credits, he puts a B-roll of of him cracking up. Yeah, I remember. And, yeah. and even Hal, Hal would come into the shot, you know, and he, when he's on the gurney saying, "You tell Raphael that this motherfucker, whatever it was," and he'd crack up, and and he and Peter felt that that cost him the Oscar. Hmm. It may have. And, I mean, it's uh, curious that he would have put it in without uh, um, asking Sellers. Yeah. Well, the, the way I... There's two stories that he told me. One is that at the ending of the movie where Peter walks on the water, the character Chauncey, he told me that he was in the cutting room. That was, the, that was not the original ending of the film. The original ending is I remember him telling you they were at the funeral 
of the old man, Melvin Douglas, mm. and Chauncey walks away, and he starts going through the woods, and he's kind of playing with one of the small little pine trees. And then Shirley MacLaine, I think she would come to him and say, Chauncey, where, where, where'd you go? I've been looking all over for you. And he would say, I've been looking for you too, Eve. <laughs> right? And it would end. But he told me that Bobby Jones, the editor and writer, called him and said, how's the movie going? And he said, oh, fantastic. You know, Peter would do whatever Peter would do. All the actors would just justify anything he would do as the, the profound truth, you know. He could have walked on water and they would have bought it. And he just said it like that. And then he said, as he said it, he said, wait a second, that's exactly what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do. And then he called uh, Robert Downey Sr., who had done the movie Putney Swope. Putney Swope, yeah. And there's an image of, you know, a character walks on water. And he said, I wanna steal that image from your movie, you know, that my movie. And apparently he, uh, Robert Sr. said, that's not mine, Hal, that's from the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so they went back to that location and Michael Haller who was the production designer also on 8 Million Ways to Die put snow on the ground they built that little ramp and they did that shot I mean the way I interpret that was that you know when you finish that movie and he walks on water you're going like you're, it was such an extraordinary ending you yeah know? It was it was controversial at the time. Oh, it was incredible. I, re I remember thinking. And I remember thinking it was it was brilliant, and then I remember reading in in, in reviews like it, it's a it's a cop out. It doesn't mean anything, but like it, it startled people. Yeah. Well, he's the last phrase he says is "life is an illusion" or something like that. And so what, the, what I interpreted was when he did the outtakes, because you're you're such in a state of mind at the end of the movie, and then Hal goes boom, he snaps you right out of it. Right. And he shows you an outtake, throwing a curveball into his own movie. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I never asked him about that, but uh, he was a very unique individual, you know. And I had one uh, uh, a brief sighting of Hal Ashby, and, and it's burned in my, my memory forever. I'm a kid, and my dad had a movie produced at MGM, which was now Sony. It was still MGM. And we went to see a, a, a cut of it. And my dad took me. I was probably like 13 years old or something. And a, a homeless guy is on the lot. He's got long gray hair, torn pants, mm -hmm. sandals. He, he's smoking like a Moore cigarette, like a long brown cigarette. Right. And as a kid, and so I know New York. I'm from New York. I'm like, how did the homeless guy get on the set? And I asked my dad, I was like, Who, who's the guy? Who's the, what, there's a homeless guy here. He said, no, that's Hal Ashby. Yeah. He had just finished Bound for Glory yeah. at, the, at, at MGM. Yeah. And I went... Jesus, that's a that's that's Hal Ashby and who he was. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah. That was his vibe. Was a complete kind of he's hippie. like a beat, beatnik. Yeah, beatnik. Yeah, yeah, he's like a beatnik. You know, he 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 used the first Steadicam in Bound for Glory, the first ever that's Steadicam right, yeah. shot, yeah. the opening shot. I think it's the opening shot of the movie. Yeah, and there's beautiful. And I don't know how he did this. Um, he was in, always on the cutting edge like that visually. You know, he had like just like Francis Coppola. You know, he he had even on A Million Ways to Die, he had a uh, a van full of like video editing and he was you know he can run like simultaneous cameras and punch them like he would do the the stones concert and stuff like that mm -hmm. he was always experimenting with that you know he also had in bound for glory they have these long takes on the top of the train as they're going through the countryside and it i i think it's all for real i don't think there's any process involved no, it doesn't no look like it but i'm going like how the hell did they pull that off they're up there they they have to I'm sure they have to keep reloading without stopping the train, right? I mean, that train's just going. They're up yeah. there for hours, I would assume. 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's really epic. Bound for Glory, I just saw it, actually. I got to see it, it again. But you, it's beautiful. But you saw the, uh, the Steadicam in there. Yeah. Garrett yeah. Morris, I think the guy's name, right, who invented it. He, mm -hmm. he actually operated it. Bobby showed it to Hal. He said, well, I'm going to put it in my movie. You know, let's go. That was the end of part one of my conversation with my friend and collaborator, Andy Garcia. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, moviestilldawn.transistor.fm. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Music